welcome our new sponsor to the Man at 50 podcast, Scars and Stripes Coffee Company. They empower veterans to build their own business using their e-commerce platform. When you purchase from Scars and Stripes Coffee, you are buying from a veteran, and your purchase directly impacts the men and women who have served our country. Do more than say, thank you for your service. Order today and empower a veteran. Use vet code Brad Richard at scarsandstripescoffee.com. That's scarsandstripescoffee.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Man at 50 podcast. I'm your host, S. Richard, author of the book, Man at 50, A Journey of Crisis, Revelation, and Survival. So let's get started on the Man at 50 podcast, a podcast that is for you, your little person within you, your hopes, your dreams, and hopefully a new plan for the future. Welcome back, everybody, to the Man of 50 podcast. I'm your host, Brad Richard, and we are back with a, another episode. Uh, today, I am joined by an author, comedian, uh, writer, uh, all-around uh, multifaceted guy uh, by the name of Frank King, uh, and Frank is with us today. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> nice to have you on the Man of 50 podcast. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. Uh, we've been uh, talking and uh, and kind of, you know, working together and collaborating on some stuff. Um, and so it's, it's great to have you on the show. And I know that you are um, so many things that, that you're doing and your story um, resonates with me because my story is somewhat similar. Um, and we're going to talk about your story first and then move into uh the book uh guts grit and the grind yeah i say that right okay yeah <laughs> and we'll move into that um as well as um talk about the things that you're doing in uh suicide prevention and programs and things that you're involved with um also you're a multi uh multi time ted ted talk uh, uh a five time ted talk uh, speaker, so we we can talk about that as well. And coach, and TED Talk, and TED Talk coach as well. So hold folks, on. hold on, buckle up, grab some coffee or espresso, uh, and and we're going to get started here with Frank King. Um, am I correct? Did, did I read in your bio? Um, did you write for the Tonight Show? Yes, I started with Jay Leno when he was just the guest, the permanent guest host. What happened was uh, Johnny would decide at the last minute, Johnny Carson, on a Friday night, he would say to the staff, look, I'm taking next week off. Uh, Mondays were always best of Carson to rerun. So that meant Jay had four nights to host and he averaged 18 jokes per monologue. So that's four times 18. I don't know what that is, but uh, close to what, 76 jokes. Wow. So he, he got to where he was hiring contract labor comics who were working the road at the time. This is 19, late 1980s. Uh, hiring comics to write jokes on spec. You filled out the independent contractor form. They gave you a fax number, and I used to fax in a dozen, two dozen jokes a day, and I averaged one or two in the monologue per week. And then when you got the gig for real, he cut loose most of the contract labor. They gave out a new fax number. I got it, and I stayed with him faxing jokes to him until, until he left the Tonight Show. So about 20 years. Wow. That's, that's, that's cool. That, that must have been a really, that must have been a neat gig. Um, did, did you have a chance to, to, you know, meet him or several times spend time with him? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I saw him perform in Charlotte, saw him after the show. And then I went to the Hermosa Beach comedy magic club where he used to go. That's where he would go and try out the jokes. I would fax him in. The staff would put them on index cards. Leno would go to the Hermosa Beach comedy magic club and stand on stage with index cards and just go through them. And anyone that hit, he put in his pocket for the monologue. So... <laughs> That's great. Well, back in the day, I would record it on a VCR. I'm a morning person. I don't stay up that late. And the next morning, I would get up. And so it was kind of like watching the lottery show every day. Because I would be sitting there. I'd hear my premise come up. And then I'm holding my breath that he used my punchline. Because, you know, we're, we were all working from the same source material, the newspapers. So everybody's writing jokes for the same premise. You're just hoping he liked yours the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, 
let's get started with um, my listeners are going to want to know um, most of the guests that I have on, um, you know, they have um, a unique story of struggle um, and of learning and growth and, and, uh, and they've, they've kind of been there, done that, um, but they're still standing and they're strong and uh, they're doing great things. And so they, they survived, um, you know, that, that, uh, that journey. Uh, to where they're, you know, where it got them uh, today. So if you can kind of get started with, um, you know, wherever you want to go back to or where, wherever you want to start with, but uh, let, let's hear your story a little bit, uh, you know, and, and where or what brought you to where you're at today and why you do what you do today. Well, let's start with comedy. I told my first joke in the fourth grade, uh, the kids and the teacher laughed and I thought I'm going to be a comedian. And then in fourth <laughs> grade, I did the talent show. First person to ever do stand up on the talent show, and I won. And I told my mama, I'm gonna be a comedian. And she said, and I quote, You're going to college first. You can be a goat herder when you get done, but you're gonna be a goat herder with a college degree. <laughs> so I went to school in Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, and then my girlfriend from high school and I moved out to San Diego. We got married. And just by chance in San Diego, there's a branch of the world famous comedy store, the one up on Sunset. And so I would feel a magnetic pull every time I drove by the place. My first wife was not big into comedy or me doing comedy. So I wasn't going there. And I really felt like I should be at open mic night every weekend. Back then, it was the beginning of the comedy boom. They had open mics on Sundays and Mondays, I believe. So two open mics a week, 30 people each open mic. And I got up on stage and my first five minutes, I did well. And in my head, I heard, heard myself say to myself, I'm home. I'm gonna do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm gonna do it for a living. Uh, my wife at the time um, said, well, that's great, but uh, not with me or not. So she, um, she cut me loose. One of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me. She said, look, you, you've wanted to be a comedian since fourth grade. You go do that. I'll go move it back in with my parents up in Seattle. We'll just get you know separated and divorced and you can pursue your comedy dream. And then she said something that motivated me to this day. She said, but I've seen your act and you don't have what it takes. <laughs> so there's nothing like the I'll show you attitude. So I, I did comedy and I, I worked as a doorman at the comedy store, seating and greeting and then doing open mic nights. And a year later, I won the, the improv move to town, improv comedy club move to town. I won the funniest person in San Diego improv contest. And I decided to take that and go on the road. So I asked my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, uh, so I'm going on the road to do stand-up full-time. You want to come along for the ride? And inexplicably, she said yes. And so we packed everything that we couldn't fit in a little Dodge Colt into storage. Both gave up our jobs department and we took off. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven wow. years. Yeah, I worked with Rosie O'Donnell, Alan DeGeneres, Kevin Nealon, Dan Carvey, Dennis Miller, Jeff Boxworthy, Ron White, back when they were just, you know, comics. And during all that time, I always wanted to make a living and a difference. I always wanted to, I, when I sold insurance right out of college, I got to see all the great old school motivational speakers like Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy. And I thought, man, I could do that. But I just had something to teach somebody. So it did not occur to me that I had something to teach somebody until I made the jump from the bar room to the boardroom, from club to comic, I'm sorry, from club comedy to corporate comedy, mid nineties. And then I, I rode that wave until the recession. And in the recession, speaking business, corporate comedy business dropped off 80%. We lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy that we'd worked for for 25 years. That by the way, was 10 years ago this summer. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. <laughs> a friend of mine was in the audience not long ago. He'd never heard me say that about not pulling the trigger. He came up afterwards and said, and I quote, hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> uh, if you want to know why I didn't pull the trigger, it's in my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death. So I realized that I could speak on mental health. And the trick was, Brad, I had to rebrand from funny speaker to speaker who was funny because all the event planners, meeting planners, speakers bureaus thought of me as a funny guy, clean and funny. So my wife suggested a TEDx talk. So I said, I applied. I got the first one I ever applied for. I went up, I did 18 minutes and I came out on stage as depressed and suicidal. 
Nobody in my world knew that. My family, my friends, my wife, nobody knew that I was living with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. I came out on stage. And I realized when I was preparing for that talk that even though hardly anybody talks about depression or suicide out loud nowadays, if you mention the words depression and suicide out loud, everybody's got a story. So that I realized that was my lane to speak on suicide prevention. Since, oh, and my family has a history called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide, my great aunt, my mother, of course I came close. Everybody in my family, except for one cousin, um, nuttier than a squirrel turd. So it runs in our family. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite well qualified to speak on mental illness, mental health. But that's how I got into it. Then I've done four more TEDx talks and I just applied for three more. Not gonna be this fall because you know it's, it's because of COVID, everything's virtual. But applied for three more in January, which they're hoping will be live. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it. Well, that's, a, <clears throat> that's an amazing transition. And, and what I find um, interesting is so many people in the comedy industry that you were part of, do, do you ever look back at those people and, and ask yourself, what are they doing? Have, have they moved on or, or what are they doing beyond that industry? Well, a goodly number of those 30 people I started with on amateur nights, I'd say 27 of them are doing something else. Three of us are still making money speaking or doing comedy. Mm -hmm. And there are a goodly number of comedians that I've known in my career who died by suicide. So a comedian friend of mine who has had three suicide attempts, she's schizoaffective, lives with schizoaffective disorder. We started a podcast called the Suicide Prevention Punchline. Uh, Suicide Prevention Punchline is a takeoff on Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And we interview comics and other creative types and clinicians because so many creative people end up dying by suicide more than just the average person in the population. Why, so, why is that, do you think? I believe my third TEDx talk was called The um, Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Everybody I've ever met who wasn't um, completely dysfunctional, you know, with mental illness, had some kind of superpower. You know, great writer, singer, artist, uh, comedian, actor. And I said superpower to my sister who has depression and anxiety. And she goes, superpower? We're not the X-Men, we're the Xanax men. <laughs> uh, but every one of them, I, I believe that mental illness is not a singularity, but it's a duality. It's mental ableness combined with mental, I'm sorry, mental illness combined with mental ableness. But it's, it's a package that the, my depression thoughts of suicide are just the flip side of my creativity, imagination, comedic ability. Um, it's just the way my brain is wired. I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. What I cannot teach you to do, because you know, if you're not mentally ill, is process the information, the input, the way I do. And I thought, I thought for the longest time, everybody processed input as I did, but I've discovered <laughs> that's not the case. I'm on a plane, uh, we're leaving Atlanta, they just changed the rules to say you can use your iPad or iPhone on takeoff or landing if it's in the airplane mode. The problem with the flight attendant is she doesn't have that written down anywhere. They just changed the rule the day before. You know, she could do the oxygen mask, floor path lighting, seat cushions in her sleep. But she's got to say something about the iPad and the iPhone. So I'm listening very closely to see what she has to say. She goes, ladies and gentlemen, um, due to the new FAA regulation, then she's stumped. You can almost hear her thinking. Then she gets inspired. She goes, due to new FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. Okay, I'm the only one on the plane doubled over laughing. My seatmate looks at me and goes, what? I go, that's review. Before I can review, she comes back on and says, if you have large equipment, you might have shoved that under the seat in front of you. So I'm down on my knees. So everybody on the plane heard the same information I did. I'm the only one who processed it you know, if you have small equipment, you can continue play as, as a sexual joke in my head. Mm -hmm. so that's, that, 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 I believe, is why so many creative types, comedians, actors, successful people, athletes, die by suicide. Is they're living with a combination of mental illness and mental illness. I believe with kids, we should treat the mental illness and wrap our arms around and enhance, you know, energize, and celebrate whatever their mental illness happens to be to change the frame for them. You know, you're... 
in my TED talk, I said, look, I'm not broken. I was made this way. If we can convince kids of that, we could reduce stigma and bullying and, you know, and, and suicide long-term. Mm -hmm. It really is a perspective, a, a self-perspective, you know, as far as uh, a, a mirror test, <laughs> um, not broken, just this is how I was made. And, and yeah. that's self-acceptance, yeah. I started, I started off the TEDx by saying, what if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? Mm -hmm. What if it's like Malcolm Gladwell says of such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage. You wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it comes with certain, as I like to call them, superpowers that my neurotypical peers can't touch. Wow. Now, <clears throat> you took the transition from comedy into suicide prevention, uh, talking about, you know, um, your realizations and, and things that you learned from, from that process. Um, and you took it to the TED Talk uh, stages um, five different times. And then that brought you um, to writing. Is that when you started the writing process? No, I, um, I, I took my stories and then my mental health journey and I combined those with, I studied something called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. It's a suicide prevention curriculum and something called Working Minds, uh, Workplace Suicide Prevention out of the University of Colorado, Denver. And then mental health first aid. And I took, so I took my comedy, my lived experience and all that learning and combined it into a one to three hour, either keynote or continuing education training. So I share my story, I share some of my humor, and then I share the nuts and bolts of suicide prevention. You know, how do you spot depression, thoughts of suicide? What do you say? What don't you say? What do you do? What don't you do? Because you often hear people say about someone who died by suicide, he never gave us any hints. We had no idea. Well, chances are, he did hint or she did hint because eight out of 10 people who die by suicide nowadays are ambivalent. They want somebody to notice and say something and nine out of 10 in the last week leading up to a suicide attempt to give hints, direct, indirect, verbal, nonverbal, behavioral. So eight out of 10 are ambivalent, nine out of 10 give hints in hopes that somebody will notice because anybody can prevent a suicide. You don't have to be a clinician. It is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. So I teach audiences what to look for, what to listen for, and then how to broach that subject or those subjects with someone they think depressed or perhaps having thoughts of suicide. <clears throat> you know, staying, staying with, with that line of thought, um, where we stand in our country today, um, I, you know, the suicide rates are, are exponentially growing, you know, and, yep. and, and the curve is, is getting steeper and steeper. Um, and we're gonna talk about veteran suicide in the second part of, uh, of the podcast, but do you think, um, I mean, what's your take on where people are at right now with how is it contributing to thoughts of suicide with all the things that are going on? Well, last year, 47,000 people died by suicide roughly, and that does not include 65,000 opioid deaths. We don't know if there are overdoses, accidental or otherwise. So 47,000 people died by suicide, that's one every 11 minutes. I've seen several studies that say tens of thousands of more people will die this year, up to 60 or 75,000 more suicides this year, which would put it at about one every four minutes. What's happening is, and I've got a keynote called social distancing and staying sane, don't worry about your mentally ill friends. I don't think it's the mentally ill who are gonna be committing, I'm sorry, dying by suicide in record numbers. Because I discovered early on in this pandemic, in this social distancing, that as someone who lives with mental illness, I've got things in place, uh, safe care plan, uh, techniques that I use, to get out of bed in the morning sometimes, just to get out of bed. But people with mental illness wake up in an uncertain world every day. So I'm, I feel like I'm pretty well prepared to wake up in this uncertain world every day. It's the people who are neuronormal or neurotypical 
who had jobs, some place to go, very much structure in their lives. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, they're maybe working from home. There's a lot less structure. Their time is their own. Um, the world is uncertain. You know, when 9-11 hit, it hit on one day and it was done and we began to rebuild. But this thing, you know, it surged, it waned, it's surging again. Are the kids going back to school? Are the kids going back to college? I mean, there's no real, somebody said to me, it's like this. If I told you, Brad, okay, look, you're going to run 20 miles, period, period. So about mile 15, you think to yourself, just five miles to go. But if I said to you, you're going to run, how far? Can't tell you. <laughs> you know, you run 15 miles, how much farther? Don't know. It's really hard to adapt to that kind of, um, you know, um, uh, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long is it going to take? Is it, you know, the, the, what they're worried about now is the, the flu that happens in the fall is about to intersect with the COVID. What's going to happen when those two intersect? So I, f- I worry for neuronormal people who are not used to dealing with this level of uncertainty. So I've been doing webinars, podcasts, radio interviews, teaching neuronormal people how to create a self-care plan, diet, exercise, um, good night's sleep, medication, meditation some gamification. How do you get out of bed in the morning? How do you get to the gym? You know, if you just don't feel like doing it. Um, Also teaching them again, how to spot signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, you know, even by Zoom, because one of the big signs of depression, one of the most glaring signs is they let their personal hygiene go. Hair's a little dirty, your clothes aren't quite as clean. Now I said to somebody, look, there's COVID casual, like this t-shirt instead of a tie, but then there's, you know, depressed casual where they haven't shaved, hair's dirty, clothes aren't, you know. So I, that I worry about people who are not used to this sort of unstructured existence. I believe you need to control the things you can control and have a schedule. Get up same time, go to bed same time, meal same time, meditate or nap same time, plan your Netflix binge time, keep your media consumption to a, you know, a minimum because mm-hmm. it's all bad news, especially on the national level. You know, the mass graves, refrigerated trucks, whatever. So, yeah, I spend a great deal of time helping people who are otherwise, you know, because what's happening, Brad, is they're becoming situationally depressed. It's not a genetic thing or a chemical thing with them. It's just a situation. And they're right. not, they've never felt this way in their lives. They, just don't, they probably don't know oftentimes what it is. Why do I feel this way? So I, I suggest, you know, if you feel odd, contact a mental health provider and do a telemedicine interview and see if you are in fact depressed and if medication, at least short term is, you know, indicated. Mm-hmm. That's, um, wow, that's, that's so powerful um, to go over those numbers. And, you know, the way you explain that, there is a large uh, um, part of the population that is finding themselves in a place that they don't understand and they probably haven't encountered people um, in their lives that they've overlooked or didn't understand or or didn't um, really give a lot of attention to people that have mental uh, mental illness or mental disorders and now people are finding themselves in a similar situation feeling uneasy and unsure and, you know, scared and, and really um, kind of shaken up by the whole situation. And so the, those increased numbers for this year is, is really scary and really crazy. Um, well, and eight out of 10 people who die by suicide at this point in the U.S. are men, generally Caucasian, generally age 45, 54. And two reasons. One is people think all the manufacturing jobs disappeared overseas. Only about 15% went overseas. The other 85% of good, solid blue collar manufacturing jobs went to AI and robotics. So you got a 50 year old guy who was the shop steward making good middle-class wages and his job was taken by a machine or AI. And men tend to tie their, you know, their ego to their job. So now he's cut loose and he doesn't know who he is. I mean, he's always been the shop steward. Now he's, not and they call them deaths of despair because because men so closely associate their employment to their you know their 
ego or their, you know, how they view themselves. So it's it's a, men, it's a, the yeah. second part is masculine toxicity or male toxicity where big boys don't cry. So men don't reach out. Exactly. I, yeah, I, I work with, um, you know, men and women, more, more men than women, more of my clients are, are men, but, um, the male toxicity, yeah, big, big issue and identifying their whole being with what they do. Yeah. Um, and, and any changes or modifications to that really can throw them into an unbelievable tailspin and, uh, and, and, basically no concept or, or no coping skills at all uh, to reconnect with, with who they are. Uh, they're, they're, they're real selves, not, you know, not what they do for a living. And so, yeah, yeah big, big, big challenge for sure. Well, and that's the reason we are writing that series of books, Guts, Grit, and the Grind on men's mental health is because men tend not to reach out, but men do tend to take advice from other men. So, all the stories in the book are about men having an issue, one issue or another, you know, how they're, and how they're coping. So another guy can read it and go, oh, that guy's, oh, he's, oh, he's doing that. I, I could do that. Now with, with, um, is, is this your first book? Or yeah, there's four books in the series, uh, volume two released yesterday on Amazon. So there are two volumes, volume one, volume two are now both on Amazon. Right. And it, the first one is, um, is guts, grit, and the grind basic mechanics? Yep, basic mechanics. Laying, the, laying out the um, premise of the series. And then the second one that just came out yesterday, the, it, the, the title's the same, but the volume two is advanced. Yeah, advanced something mechanics. Advanced, yeah. Like, so it digs a little deeper. For example, mm-hmm. it talks about men and Women tend to accumulate friends through life. Men, on average, tend to have fewer and fewer close friends during their life. You know, they have close friends when they're in athletics or the Boy Scouts, when they're in college, when, you know, they're in their rotary and they're younger. But men tend to shed friends besides the ones they have at work. So the book encourages you to find your tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, either create one or join one. Um, I'll give you an example. The VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars, those halls all have a bar. And you don't have to be a veteran of a foreign war to go there. And they have dart teams, clubs, and dart tournaments. And they found out that guys are not looking each other in the eye. They're throwing darts. They're staring down at the, you know, down the, whatever, at the dartboard. They can talk about anything, things that matter, because they're not there to talk. They're there to throw darts, and the conversation happens organically. Mm-hmm. So that's one way they recommend you go to the VFW hall, join a dart. There's a movement called the um, barbershop movement for African-Americans because the barbershop has been a safe place of refuge for African-Americans for decades. And so you're sitting in the barber's chair, barber standing behind you so you're not looking each other in the eye. And again, men, if they're not looking each other in the eye and they're doing something else, they can talk about things that matter. So there are a number of these movements to get guys together to begin talking about things that matter, whether it's mental health or I can't tell you how many people I know, men, who died of colon cancer or prostate cancer because they've ignored their physical health. They refuse to get the PSA. They refuse to have the colonoscopy. And both those illnesses are eminently treatable if you stay on top of them. But, you know, guys, I'm a guy. Why would I, you know, so. Yeah. This is just my opinion. I don't know if you share it or not, but um, I, I, I'm 56 um, years old, and I've never seen a time in my life where men need to step up into a role of protector and encourager and and the the um, camaraderie of other men and being part of a group and standing up in, in you know in in our communities because children women um, and families right now seem to be so 
so intense and and troubled and scared and yeah I, I, there's so many people that are looking for leaders you know what i'm saying and um and, and i see a lot of the men that that i work with and that i associate with um they're not stepping up they're sitting back and and waiting to see what's going to happen and who's going to fix it you know um and and so where, where do where do you see male masculinity right now in the middle of all the stuff that's going on in our country? Do you well, think I think then, first of all, after you know the old expression, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. Mm -hmm. I think you need to create a self care plan for yourself because you can't help someone else if you if you cannot help yourself. Yeah, bingo. So I recommend they interviewed a guy who was in the space station for a year, you know, circling the Earth, and he was he was alone most of the time. And they asked him, "What is the what's your best advice for somebody who's isolated?" Another guy who's isolated. He said, schedule. Got to have a routine. So until a guy establishes a routine, it's very difficult to help anybody else. Uh, and I believe men have to advocate for themselves, whether it's advocate for their mental health, physical health, or their finances. You know, don't hide your head in the sand. Call your cell phone carrier, power company, water company. Everybody's got a plan to help you through this and cover the bills until things return to near normal. But you have to step up. You have to admit you're struggling. Very difficult for men. Right. Yeah, I think that's the first thing is, you know, you have to admit that you don't have this wired. You haven't got it all figured out. You need to reach out for help, whether it's from your family or from, and again, as somebody with mental illness, I've created, they talk about it in the second book. It's, it's a lot of automobile metaphors. So they said, you need a pit crew, like a race car driver. Mm -hmm. So when you pull into the pit, there are people there you can depend on who know the situation and can help you. And I've got a pit crew. I've got several people around me that I can be honest with about how I'm feeling. You know, that if they say, how are you? I say I'm wretchedly depressed and suicidal. They don't freak out. They just step up and listen, you know, and ask how that feels and what that means. And, you know, what possibly can I do for you? I've got a friend in Philadelphia. If I called him right this minute and said, I'm suicidal, I've you know, I've got a gun in the house and I, I'm not sure that I, you know, I'm going to survive the week. He would get on a plane and be here tomorrow to help me out. You need to, men need to have people like that in their lives, male and female, who care about them, understand what they're going through. A pit crew, as we say in the book, somebody to step up and help you out. And you need to have that in advance. That's the nice thing about being mentally ill. I've got all the systems set up. So when this thing hit, you know, it's just another day for me. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, you are. You already were plugged into your team. Yeah, and your, yeah, I, I on stage. I speak. I'm vulnerable. I talk about you know my mental illness. I get choked up. Um, I've got no problem reaching out for help if I need help, mentally, physically, or financially. Um, you know, I don't have to put up a front that I'm. You know, I'm a guy. I'm. I'm you know, I don't need anybody. I, you know, I'm a pull myself up by my bootstrap. I let all that go when I put the gun in my mouth. And so that, that's the advantage I have. Vulnerability is my superpower. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I tell you what. Let's um. We're we're just a couple minutes past our our break, so I'm going to take a, a short break, uh, sponsor break, and we're going to be back, uh, part two with uh, Frank King. So uh, hang in there, folks, and uh, uh, we're just going to have a, a quick little sponsor break, and we'll come right back with uh, with the second part of the episode. I want to welcome our latest sponsor to the Man at 50 podcast. The company's name is Pure Green, and they are one of the fastest growing juice and smoothie bar franchises in the U.S. They are taking on health straight on with some fantastic, uh, healthy, delicious products. So I would encourage you to check them out at puregreen.com. That's puregreen.com. And um, I am very happy to be uh, associated with the Pierre Green family and very happy uh, that they are a sponsor of the show. And we are back, back from our short break. And uh, folks, if you are listening to the second half and you didn't get to listen to the first half, um, I don't know how that would happen. But anyway, um, we are speaking with Frank King. He is a stand-up comedian. Uh, he's a writer, um, speaker. And he has done just so many different uh, different things in his life. Um, I think uh, I would say that today 
he is uh, making a big difference in the world uh, and dealing with suicide prevention and helping men as well as women uh, cope, with, uh, cope with things in their lives and uh, help them get through uh, some tough times. So we're back. Welcome back, uh, Frank. Thank you. <laughs> um, before we went to break, you were talking about the pit crew. And, um, you know, I, I completely can relate to that. Uh, for the longest time, I had no pit crew. I had no team. And, you know, and I think we had this conversation uh, before today. We talked about it. But I was a codependent uh, man-child for 50 years of my life. And I had no male friends. I had no male support. Uh, and I had, like I said, I had no pit crew. And so when it came time for me to go mentally somewhere, uh, I, I set up dead ends for myself and I set up uh, roadblocks. Uh, and and uh, even when I asked the right questions, I, I never got any answers back because there was, there was nothing there. You know, I was bouncing it off of, of, uh, of nobody. And so um, I know how important that would have been for me uh, in, in my two failed marriages and growing up uh, as a teenager. Um, I, I had six brothers. Well, no, I have five brothers. <laughs> I have five brothers plus my dad. And I'm, I'm, I'm the sixth. I'm the sixth brother. I got 10 kids in my family. Um, and yet I was completely uh, disassociated with my father and my, and my, uh, my brothers. And so, um, you know, grew up very codependent and had no uh, male connection whatsoever. I joined the military to try to find it and that didn't work either, uh, you know, for me. Um, so, yeah, I, what you're saying about a pit crew, if you can expand on that and maybe talk about the yeah. book a little bit more, um, because I think it's really important. Uh, I wish I would have had that and, and it's available now. And, and I've read the book. Uh, the first one, I haven't obviously read the second one yet because it came out yesterday, but the first one was great and I would highly recommend it. We'll, we'll have a link in the show notes where people can go buy a copy of it. And I believe you're going to contribute a story to book three or four, are you not, Brad? Yes, I'm working on that. I'm going to be a contributing, uh, uh, contribute a story to either the third or the fourth volume. That's uh, And the, the book is... Um, Two women came up with the idea. Sarah Gare, who's a therapist, she teaches suicide prevention to first responders, has for years. She went to Barnes & Noble to buy a book on men's mental health, thinking, you know, she might have a particularly um, needy student, a male, a first responder who could use a book and couldn't find one. Went on Amazon, couldn't find one. So she thought, we'll write one. She contacted a woman named Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas who is pretty far up the food chain in the world of suicide prevention, lost her brother. Um, and she also lives with mental illness. So they got together and they called me. And they said, Frank, listen, we're writing a book on men's mental health. We want you to make it funny. And I want you to add the automobile metaphors. And I said, wait a minute, you two women are writing a book on men's mental health. Don't you think you might need, I don't know, a man? So they took me on as co-editor and I added the funny and it looks like an automobile owner's manual. Now on the cover, there's a guy with his head popped, you know, top of his head popped off and a guy with a screwdriver on the ladder looking in. And the idea is there's so many brain vehicle or automobile metaphors that work. For example, when you get a car, you need to do routine maintenance, change the oil, rotate the tires, top off the fluids, you know, brakes. And so with your brain, you need to do routine maintenance on your brain. You need to eat right, as I mentioned, sleep, exercise, meditation, perhaps medication. Then when you buy a car, you prepare ahead for problems, whether it's an accident, airbags, you know, seat belts, shoulder harness, crumble zones, or it's a breakdown. You join AAA because you know at some point, probably, you're gonna be out on the highway in the middle of the night, pouring down rain with a flat tire or a thrown rod or whatever, and you're gonna to need to tow back to the automobile repair place. So. That's what I added to it was I, it's like brakes. 
there, we, we um, created a, in the drug and alcohol addiction sections, we talk about how breaks are a lot like addiction in that when you first start off with substances, it's not a problem. You know, it's a joint, it's a beer, it's just to relax. And then if it gets out of hand, if it's a six pack a night and you know, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's smoking constantly before going to work. And, and then as breaks do, you know, they get, begin to get worn out and you start hearing squeaks and the squeaks for guys, you know, girlfriend left, lost the job. These are signs like the squeaking breaks that, you know, something needs to be repaired. Until if you continue ignoring the squeaking brakes, the day will come when you push the brake pedal and it goes all the way to the floor and nothing happens. And the same thing can happen with addiction. If it goes too far, you know, you push the pedal to the floor, there's nothing to stop you from going over the edge. Mm -hmm. So that's why we chose automobile metaphors. Here's my favorite. Don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light? You know, if something goes wrong, light comes on. Send him to the mental mechanic, puts, puts a guy up on the rack. Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. <laughs> so we thought if we made it, you know, automobile related, that guys, A, might pick up the book because it doesn't look like a self-help book. And B, Brad, we think a lot of women are going to buy the book for a man in their life who has an issue and is having difficulty dealing with it. And the woman is at loose ends as to how to help. Right. So, yeah, I think there's definitely, there, there's a disconnect um, from a woman's perspective, you know, uh, the book, I think is a great tool for them to kind of understand um, how a man's mind works or, you know, um, it sh they may see it like it should work this way. But I think the book is a great guide for them to go. No, it, no, no, it, it, no, it's not going to work that way. It, it you know, uh, it, because he's gonna, he's gonna do it this way because that's how our car would run, or that's how it would work in an automobile. So I, well, I think it's, yeah, it's a. It's and a great we, tool. we surveyed men and women. We asked men, give us a top ten list of your issues, your struggles, your problems, and then we asked women, okay, make a list of what you think are guys' top ten issues, struggles, problems. And the, there were commonalities on both lists. The order was not the same. On the women's list, money was number one, they thought, for men. And for men, money was down there near number three or four. Okay, but basically the same list, just in different order. And then we asked men what kind of help they wanted from a woman if they were struggling. And we asked women, what kind of help do you think a man would want if he's struggling? The lists were completely different. <laughs> Nothing the women thought they could offer was anything the men said they wanted. That's one of the reasons we wrote the book. So, like I said, so they can they can decode, you know, not just what they think the guy needs. It's what the guys tell them they need. This is the help I need. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the book, um, well, the first volume, and I'm sure the second volume, the second volume coming out yesterday, so, but the first volume that I read, um, I think it's a simpler version of men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Yeah. But it's, but it's not, it's more straightforward and it's more clear and concise. <laughs> For me, it was simpler, you know, uh, to read. And it was, uh, uh, I understood things um, better than, actually, I read that book too. Um, I, and I didn't get that much out of it. <laughs> so, well, uh, yeah. So, you know, that, the that, guts, grits, and, and the grind is, uh, in, in my opinion, it's it's more straightforward and it's 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 a better book, you know, well, to I understand. Mary from Mars, Mary from Venus. And those two people, each one has been married several times, once to each other. And, right. and they're relationship therapists, gurus, and they couldn't get it right. The, the joke I wrote, it's like, you know, like a shop teacher with three fingers. Yeah, he knows how all the machines work, He's just not really good at us. <laughs> he doesn't listen to his own safety no. tips. Yeah. yeah. They've both been married several times, married to each other, couldn't make it work, and they wrote a book. Oh my uh, <laughs> And it's kind of ironic, but uh yeah, definitely it's uh 
Yeah. Well, now they also say that uh, uh, a mechanic has the worst car on the block. Yeah. Yeah. Or a Congress plumber has. Plumber. Yeah, plumber has plumbing issues and so on and so on. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, cobbler's children have no shoes is, is an old expression. Yeah, sometimes yeah, sometimes we're our worst teacher, you know, when it when it really uh when it really comes down to it, I guess. So. Well, and you know what? Um, apropos of what we're what we're going through now is a lot of people who are in caretaker roles, doctors, nurses, CNAs, other people who are caretakers, tend not to take care of themselves. They take care of everybody else first. Mm-hmm. And we talked about you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first and look after yourself so you can look after other people. Right. And I think um, when, when you were, when you pointed out, you know, as far as putting your own oxygen mask on first before you can help somebody else, that, that's kind of where, um, that's kind of where I was going with my question as far as where men are at. And, um, you know, and, and standing up and, 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 Kind of taking charge and and uh making people feel safe around them and, i think yeah i would say something of the reverse is true that they need to admit to their vulnerability that they don't have it wired that the situation is so strange now that it's going to be a team effort you know i need your help um mm -hmm. to, to help us all get through this i mean i'm happy to lead the way but we need to you know this needs to be decision by committee sure you know, it's, I think, I think, you know, a good leader listens to the troops. Um, my father-in-law was in the Marine Corps. He knew Chesty Puller. Um, he was a China Marine. He was on, he was in, in China and then on Corregidor, then on Death March. And, but when, when we weren't at war, he would go into the enlisted men's latrine and they had like five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, latrines lined up. He would sit right in the middle on the pot fully dressed and just listen to the guys talking back and forth about the issues of the day. <laughs> and that's how he learned what they needed. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, now that's true leadership. Yep. So, uh, so few leaders that I've been in contact with, um, understand that, you know, um, and, and they're, their sole focus is being the leader and quote unquote setting an example, but not really knowing who they're leading, you know, yeah. and, 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 and where they're taking them. Um, and I think a good leader, if they need help, will reach out, try not to appear invulnerable, you know, or know it all. Look, I need help. This mm -hmm. is something I've never faced. We've never faced before. And I, I can't handle this by myself, it, but it takes a, Takes a special, special certain guy, certain special guy, to be able to say, you know, I don't have it wired. I need help. Mm -hmm. But 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 to bring a group of people together and and uh, approach it like we can get this done, we can take care of this, but we need, but you know, it's the take a village thing. Uh, yeah, take takes a village. So. You guys are all very talented. Uh, I respect your opinions. Well, let's sit down. Let's get organized. How are we going to get through this? How are right. we going to get through this? Right. Yeah, and uh, that's, I guess that's what I see um, not being done in, in a lot of the circles and a lot of the groups uh, that I'm part of. Um, the inaction and, and wanting to find their group, find their tribe, like you talked about, uh, and that's really important. Um, you know, I, I have days that um, I don't want to do anything but uh, be connected to my online uh, friends um, because when I'm at work in my job, um, the energy and the camaraderie and the, and the team building, uh, it, it, it's lacking to, to a degree where all I can think about is getting back to the online connections, you know, the positive, uh, the, the positive thinking and the, the team spirit and we can do things together and we can make, you know, great changes and make, and, and make things happen. Um, so I gravitate to the people that are moving 
and that are planning and that that want me to be part of their group and uh and so for me it's so important uh and, and i kind of miss being able to do it in person you know yeah uh, i agree right right now uh i i'm a in-person person um and the online thing is all we have right now but uh but i i really miss the uh the one-on-one -on -one contact and you as a comedian i'm sure you do as well you know yeah so it's, it's better to have a live audience trust me yeah well uh you do you get recharged from the audience i find that speaking and doing comedy because they're separate you know they're separate gigs when i was on the cruise ships i just did comedy i didn't have to make any points no action items no takeaways i was just funny mm -hmm. and interacted quite a bit with the audience and i found that invigorating and then when i speak it's it's more substance less funny but still you know it's it's conceivable when i speak because of the things people say when they come up afterwards, that perhaps we saved a life or two that day. That's very therapeutic for me. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I had, um, it, I think I told you this, I, not today, but I think I told, told you this when we talked before. Um, I grew up wanting to be in the music industry. Yeah. Um, I too wanted to be an entertainer, you know, like, like, you, uh, like you were. And, um, and for me, um, I, I drew a lot of energy from, from crowds. And yeah. when I, and when I, uh, when I did singing and when I was, uh, singing and entertaining people, I would draw that energy from them and that fueled me. Um, and it's funny because now I'm not on stage as far as a singer or an Elvis impersonator. Um, you know, I'm just a mentor and a speaker. But um, but the the level of energy and and satisfaction is uh, is actually greater than it was when I used to sing in front of people, you know. Um, and I, I, there's nothing. It's hard to replace that feeling of someone looking at you and saying you made a difference. Yeah. And you and you said it or you worded it in just the right way that it sunk in and it clicked and it made a difference. Um, you know, I've had people say to me after hearing my TEDx, one of my TEDx talks, look, I've, I've got the same issue. I could just ne and could never put it into words and you, you expressed it exactly as I feel it. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have somebody they care about watch it. <laughs> you, know, you know, always ask how I'm feeling, watch this. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, as we're going to, we're almost out of time and we're going to wrap it up, but I wanted to, from you, I wanted to hear what are three signs that people can look for if they think a friend or a loved one, a coworker, family member, um, may be suicidal or maybe having some mental health issues. What are three things people can look for? And then I want to end uh, the podcast was talking about the veterans out there because we're losing so many of them each and every day. Well, I think we start, start with signs and symptoms of depression, um, isolation, withdrawing from social activities, although pretty much everybody is withdrawing from social activities at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. A big one I think I told you was let, let the personal hygiene go because just can't drag themselves out of bed to wash their hair, shave, or do a load of wash. Um, people always ask me, what do you say at that point if you think they're depressed? This is what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? What you do say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I hope to get the treatment. And then you got to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Now, how do you spot suicidal thoughts without them answering that in the affirmative? Um, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, music, writing. Um, they're getting their personal affairs in order. They're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Collecting the means to die by suicide, whether it's stockpiling medication or buying a weapon. And here's a counterintuitive one, extremely dangerous. 
they've been depressed for a really long time and then for no apparent reason they're happy and it's dangerous because you're happy because they're happy it may be they've selected time place and method and they know that the pain is finite it's coming to an end because what a lot of people don't understand is suicide is often not wanting to die it's wanting simply to end the pain so let's say they're depressed and they say they're having thoughts of suicide what do you say do you have a plan if they have a plan what is your plan if it's detailed you need to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline if they won't pick up the phone you pick it up you call the volunteer and they'll do what they can to get the phone in the hands of the person who's in crisis or if it's a young person there's a text line text the word help 741-741 now let's say the plan is not particularly detailed then my next question always is well are you going to kill yourself and if they say no and i believe this is the most important question then i say tell me why not make them give voice to why they're not going to kill themselves my friends my family my animals whatever but make them give voice to why they're not going to end their lives have them speak it out yep have them give voice to it yes yeah, say it out loud why not okay if you're not going to kill yourself tell me why not <clears throat> yeah those are those are good things um for sure when it comes to uh when it comes to our veterans um I, are you a veteran no, I was in ROTC in high school, but no, I, uh, okay. <laughs> listen, uh, Brad, uh, the military comedians don't mix that well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Drill sergeants usually don't like the, the funny guys. So no, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, most comedians have problems with authority, so it's not really a good career choice. Yeah. It's not, uh, trust me. Um, I, I tried to, uh, be funny and crack some jokes and it didn't go over well. No. So, but, uh, I, I had, I had seven years in the army uh, as a military police officer, and um, you know, so I mean, you know, I'm connected to the to the vets that are out there. Um, one of my sponsors is Scars and Stripes Coffee, and yeah. um, you know, so I'm connected and I network with those guys on sales sales calls and sales uh, uh, chats and stuff, um, and and they're all they're all doing that uh, to keep their minds busy and to stay connected with fellow veterans. Um, now, myself and others, when it comes to the sheer numbers of suicides that the veterans are seeing each and every day. And um, active duty, by the way. And active duty. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I'm assuming that the, vet, the numbers of veterans committing suicide uh, is much higher than the general population. Is that correct? Or? Uh, 22 a day, I think, veterans and at least one active duty. Um, the Air Force last year, by this time last year, had a record number. They had more suicides by this time last year they, than they did the full year prior. Wow. And since I talked to you last, I got a call from a woman, retired. It's a base in Missouri, it's called um, Joint base, a joint base. It's Navy, Air Force, and Marines, I think, or anyway, three branches of the service are all on the same base. Mm -hmm. And and I've been asked in the past to speak on base, but the problem is they don't have a budget. And so I said, look, here's my fee, but I really like to speak on base. So I'll discount the fee. And I got it down to where she thought, I think at 2500 she doesn't have to go upstairs to get it approved. So we picked 2,500 plus travel. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to go to Missouri to this joint base and speak to, you know, the rank and file because they, it's, it's a big problem active duty as well as it is in, in the veterans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the tips or the, the three things to look for, um, would, would that go along or would that work for veterans as well? Or do you think because they're coming from a different mindset and they've maybe seen some things that the average population hasn't experienced, um, should we deal with veterans differently? Is there, is there other tools and resources for veterans that, that me and my listeners need to know about? Yeah, I would, there are a number of suicide prevention lifelines staffed by veterans. Okay. So you, you need to ask Google 
And that way you're speaking to someone who has spent time in the military and knows, you know, of what you speak. And it's not, it's not the people who went overseas into a war zone and came back who are having the greatest difficulty as veterans. It's the people who disconnected from the military after X number of years, because when you re-enter the civilian population, unlike the military where everybody's got your back, you've got a unit, you've got, you know, there's cohesion, people looking after you. In the civilian world, that's not the case. And that seems to be one of the things that's most difficult for people who have separated from the military. Those seem to be the ones at highest risk because of that yeah. lack of structure and, um, you know, and backup that they had, you know, in, in the military, if you're in a good unit, you've got your own pit crew right there. Right. And in yeah. the civilian world, <laughs> that ain't the case. Sorry. Sorry about that. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> the um, it's, Shepherd. It, it's, it's funny because when that happened, um, I don't know if you saw this, uh, and we'll just kind of go off the cuff anyway. But um, it was on social media, and uh, Damon Johns was doing a live stream uh, on his porch of, of his house. He was out in the back porch, and it was so funny. The chickens kept interrupting his live stream, and, and he had to stop the live stream, get up, and go, I don't know, yell at them or shoo them away or something. But, but when that happened, I just, I got that flashback because I saw it just a couple of days ago and, and he was trying to do a business entrepreneurial yeah. live stream and his chickens were interrupting it. So it's I don't know. It was authentic. Yeah. Of the social distancing, COVID, virtual, whatever. <laughs> and listen, speaking of which, I got to run. I got to go pick up a dog. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we're going to wrap it up. Um, but folks, just... We're going to let Frank go because he's got to run. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate you being on the show, Frank. Uh, we'll put your website in the show notes. Uh, with people, a way for people to contact you. Definitely yeah. check out the book, uh, folks. Um, both volumes are now on Amazon. So they yep. can get both volumes on Amazon. And uh, to find out more about you, they can visit your website. We'll put all that in the show notes. So uh, you bet. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for being on the Man at 50 podcast. And uh, we'll wrap it up. If you want to drop off, that's fine. I'm going to go ahead and close off the show. Uh, and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for joining us, Frank. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Bye for now. All right, everybody. Frank is going to drop off there. And uh, um, he, uh, I, think, I think his family came home. Um, and I think uh, his uh, his dog came home or or found his way into the house. So that kind of kind of uh, that was funny. Um, <laughs> like I said, uh, it's pretty authentic, and and that's what happens in life. So um, anyway, uh, Frank is a is a great guy. Um, he's helping hundreds of thousands of people uh, working in the field of suicide prevention, and. Uh, I'll go ahead and put all the information in the show notes so you can contact him. Uh, definitely pick up a copy of his book that he co-authored uh, with, uh, with the two other ladies. Um, I've read the first one. It is great. And um, I think the, the nuggets that I got out of the interview, uh, what I got out of, out of uh, my talk with Frank today is um, have a system in place have a team in place. If you don't have a support structure, if you don't have a support uh, system in place, then it's time that you create one. Um, and we all are going to have to come together and we're all going to have to, uh, uh, at one point or another, we're going to have to be, be part of, of somebody's tribe, somebody's uh, so support network. And uh, there's no better time than, than now to do that. Um, things are still rough uh, for a lot of people out there. And the, the suicides in the military, um, they just break my heart as well as in the general population. Um, but like Frank said, you, you've got to be aware uh, of the signs and 
you have to just offer your help and, and your understanding. And um, just keep in mind that if, if you know of people that are struggling, um, that they're having some mental health issues, um, you, give, your, give them your time and understanding. Um, and and if, if you are present and in front of them, um, like he said, nine, eight out of 10, um, they, they want other people to know what their intentions are. They, they want to be stopped. They want people to understand uh, the pain they're feeling and um, they want the pain to stop. And so uh, uh, myself and the listeners of the show, um, you know, be that, be that uh, person to, to possibly help them get to a place of stopping the pain and getting a handle on it and getting, getting uh, control of it. So um, I just, I want to thank uh, once again, Frank King for being on the man at 50 podcast. And um, that's going to wrap it up. I think for this episode, uh, thanks uh, everyone for joining us. Uh, we will be back with another episode within the next week or so. Uh, we are scheduling uh, more authors and more guests to be on the show. And so, uh, yeah, we got a lot of exciting things coming up and uh, we're going to uh, uh, call it a wrap uh, for, for this week. So take care of, every, uh, take care of yourself, uh, take care of everybody. Uh, remember to take care of your little me, love your little me, and remember they're always with you. Until next time, this is your host, Brad Richard for the Man of 50 podcast, and thanks for joining us. Until next time, bye for now. This has been the Man at 50 podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us next week for our next episode and our next guest on the show. Visit us on the web at www.bradrichard.net. That's www.bradrichard.net. Until next time, take care.